as a foundation, take your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 8, uh, but we're going to move from Hebrews. Hebrews 8 and verse 5. Hebrews 8 and verse 5. Talking about the earthly priests in Israel and their ministry. Hebrews 8 verse 5. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is the earthly tabernacle he is talking about that God gave Moses the plan of and he had to responsible to build exactly. Since it's a copy and shadow of what is in heaven, this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. In other words, Moses, don't you dare make a mistake. Reason, it is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Copy means exact. Shadow means it's not the real. There is a real, but this is the shadow of it. So if we want to know anything about heaven and what goes on in heaven, we're going to have to look at the tabernacle and what happened in the tabernacle because it is a copy and shadow. And I'm going to concentrate on one thought and you'll find it over in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. The Bible says, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Meaning, whether you're dealing with the tabernacle or the temple, there was a veil and you couldn't go past it. Only one man could ever go past that veil in the Old Testament and that was the high priest. So there was a barrier. You could not go into the most holy place. There was fixed regulation and timing for one man to go in once a year only. A most sobering year, a day in the year called the Day of Atonement. When all the sins of all Israel will be placed upon the head of a live goat. And that goat would be taken away, bearing the sins of all Israel for all that year. It carried them into the wilderness far as the east is west, from the west so far, has he removed our transgressions from us? It's a shadow of a reality which happened in Christ as far as we are concerned. But the Bible says, while the tabernacle stands, please notice in your Bible, the way, the way is not open. Now when we come to Scripture, there is a principle which I generally try to impart to students. When God mentions something in the Genesis, right at the beginning, He will build on it from that point on. And He doesn't have to change, right? He knows the end from the beginning. So when He does something here, He'll build on it step by step by step till you see the whole thing laid out before our eyes. And you, uh, I trust at the end of this you'll say, Behold the man. All right? 
So I'm going to take you that path. Um, the early church, oh, I deal with the two texts which lay the basis for what we are going to think about. Twice in the book of Proverbs, and the quotes are up there on your board where it's taken from, <coughs> it says, there is a way, notice, a way. It seems right. It seems right. But the end is death. Now they're very serious words written to mankind. There is a way. It seems right. It's not the right way. It seems right. How are you ever going to know you're on the wrong way? <laughs> because there is a way. It seems right. How do I know I'm not on that way? It seems right. But its end is death. If that's true, well, what's the right way? That would be our automatic question. There must be a wrong way. It's a, it's a way. It seems right. But its end is death. Is it desperate to know we are on the right way? <laughs> must be. So I'm going to take you on a pathway which is there. Now listen. You're called Kingsway Christian Fellowship. True? And we have all kinds of fellowships everywhere with different names. Sometimes it tells you a bit about them. Most times today it's just fellowship and you don't know what they believe or anything about it. All right? In the Bible, the early church had a name. How did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> Notice, they did not give that name to themselves. That is what the world named the early church. They are, were identified by their message. Would to God, we were identified today by our message. King's Way, maybe you've got close to it. <laughs> Christian Wade getting close to it. <laughs> Let's take our Bible and listen and go through the early church and understand they were identified by the message they carried. Turn to Acts chapter 9. I think I've got it up there. Yeah, Acts 9. <coughs> and we're in verse 2. We're talking about Saul, who later became Paul after the death of Stephen. They were scattered. Acts 9, we're going to read from verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to. How did he identify them? They were identified, these people, they belonged to the way. <coughs> Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's on his task to do just that. The identifying evidence, they belong to the way. All right, you go further over in your text. And you're over the next one, at Acts 19, verse 9. 
Acts 9, I'm going to read from verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue on his missionary trip to Ephesus. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. All right. So that this thing, issue of the way is very important. They reacted, they rejected, and they spoke evil of it. So what is the way? Let's go on in your text. You go further over. And I... Huh? Which was the next one? 22. Oh, yeah, I'm in 21. 22. And verse 4. Paul is giving a record of his past... Verse 4, I persecuted the followers of this way. Let me ask you, was it the right way? The only way. It's identified he hated them. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. (laughs) And was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted this way followers of this way to the death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Pretty violent reaction to the way. All right. Maybe we would get the same today if we were known as the way. Marvel not if the world hates you. It hated me before it hated you. The reaction to the message of Jesus creates hatred out of those who will not accept him. That's just the pattern of the Bible. It's given to us not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. He is the way. So we have to be very clear in our message, the way, because they are all following a way and it seems right. Everywhere you turn, people think the way they're on is right, but it leads to death. And God has brought into the world a message called the gospel and it is all about the way. And it commences right back at the beginning of creation and he never changes it right through till the end. He will never alter it. So I'm going to take you on a pathway that leads there. But before we go there, we still have a few more on this. And you're in um, Acts 24. Paul again is giving his testimony about his background. Verse 13, Acts 24, verse 13. And he says, They cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However... I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. Tell me, can you admit that today? Is that your confession? Paul said, I admit, before uh, a questioning crowd of leaders in Israel, I admit (coughs) I'm a worshipper of God 
the God of our fathers, and as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Oh, I thought JWs was a sect. I thought Mormons was a sect. Here we are told they were known as a sect. That's not not something nice said about you, eh? You're a sect. You're the wrong ones. You're totally out of it. You're a sect. I worship the God of our fathers. I admit I do. But then he said, I'm the follower of the way which is called the sect. And then he identifies where he gets his message from. Please notice, I believe everything that agrees with what? The law and the prophets. Where did you see that? The Southern Cross and the two pointers. The law and the prophets. So we're going to take in God's mind from the very beginning, from before he founded the world. God had one way, and it's the only way. There is no other. There are plenty of ways, but they're wrong. So there are those who follow a way. It seems right. There are many following away but it leads to death there is only the way and that message the early church carried to their suffering that's what they ministered and that's why they suffered all right down in your text you're in Matthew uh, Acts 24 and you're down in verse 22 then Felix who was well acquainted with the way, even Felix, he knew all about it. No wonder Paul said, this thing was not done in a corner. Everyone knows what happened there when it comes to the cross. We're not done in a corner. It was the talk of everything. We sometimes forget these things. If you had media today, Facebook was going frantic because of what happened. You a stranger? Don't you know what's happened in Jerusalem? What things? Tell me what things. Oh, this Jesus of Nazareth, prophet mighty in word and deed, we believed he would have delivered Israel. He's the talk of the place and his disciples. But, it, you know, he's been put in a tomb, crucified, put in a tomb. Some came back, they went to the tomb, tomb was empty, saw a vision of angels, but they didn't see him. And that's when he began with the law and the prophets, again. So we're stepping into an area which I trust I can take you step by step by step and show you the importance of one verse in your whole Bible in the book of Genesis that contains every thought about salvation. And it is Genesis 3 verse 24. Genesis 3 and verse 24. Verse 24. Step by step, you can take this verse apart and you ought to. Much of the scripture, all you have to do is take a text 
a verse and open it out thought by thought. And that's what I'm going to do as we go through. Look at your text, verse 24. First thought. After he drove out the man. Right. So where was the woman? He called their name Adam. You can't, both are driven out. He drove out the man. One was taken out of the other, all right? So woman is out of man. She's as much a man as he is. She's taken out of him. It's part of him. <coughs> so when we come to this there, he drove out <coughs> the man. That's the first point. It says, after he did. So picture yourself. You weren't there and I weren't there. <laughs> but you can imagine you have a Garden of Eden. Eden means paradise or pleasure. Paradise, it's the first thinking of paradise in your Bible. But it means pleasure, a place of pleasure. Evidently, for man and for God. It was a place of fellowship particularly. That's what it was meant for. So he, we have here, after he drove the man out, Tell me, is that a violent action? Is that an unchangeable action? He drove them out. What's that mean? You have no right in here. So he drives them out. After he drove them out, he just didn't drive them out. After he did that, he did action after action. Please note your wording. After he drove the man out, he placed where? East. On the east side of the Garden of Eden. So, where was the entrance to the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden had an entrance. He drove them out of the Garden of Eden. And on the east side, so where was the entrance? On the east side. So if you want to go into the Garden of Eden, this is where you go in. It's on the east side of the garden. They're driven out on the east side. So if they're driven out like that, where are they heading and what's behind them? They are heading east. The Garden of Eden is behind them. It's in the west. That's the picture we have. Then it says this. <coughs> he placed on the east side. So if you go back and you look at the entrance, if they had turned back, on the entrance to the garden where they had been driven out, what do they see? Cherubim. Now cherubim cry in your New Testament Revelation, Holy, 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 day and night. They never cease. Why? God is holy, absolutely holy. No sin can come into his presence. That's the message. Thrice holy. He can't stand the sight of sin. So cherubim are there and they are awesome creatures. In their own personage and being, they have a message. Now, I'm not going to go into it, all right? But you'll see them in Ezekiel, you'll see them in Revelation. These awesome beings. Lucifer was the greatest cherub 
of them all. And he was over the throne of God. He was the anointed cherub, guardian of the throne of God. But he's been thrust from his place. So he's not there like that. But there are cherubim, more than one, and they are there. So if you turn around, what are you going to see? Cherubim, first of all. What happens when you see cherubim? Read Ezekiel. You've got no strength left. You just collapse. That's it. The sense. We say things without the sense that accompanies it. The sense of holiness, the sense of God's presence. You can say words, I can say words, but unless the real sense of what we are saying descends on us, we don't feel it. That's the problem with your television. You see it, but you're not there. You're not hearing of the flames roaring. You're not feeling them eating up your whole house or your whole income or whatever it is if you're a farmer. You're not feeling it. You see it, but you're not feeling it. And the same is true when it comes to angelic beings. Daniel said, I have no strength. All my comeliness is turned to corruption. And that's only Gabriel. This is not cherubim. This is cherubim here. They are awesome creatures. And they're standing there and they are concerned with the holiness of God. So that you have at the entrance these cherubim. But that's not the only thing there. It says this. <coughs> On the east side, garden of Eden, cherubim. And a flaming sword. Now we are told in Scripture that flaming sword turned every way. What's that mean? Oh, I can duck around and get in. It turned every way. A flaming sword. It's not just a sword. A sword is used to kill. Flaming is to consume to ashes. It is the first implication of a whole burnt offering. To have a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering, you need knife and fire. To enter God's presence, you're going to have some experience or understanding of a whole burnt offering. Let me ask you, was Christ your whole burnt offering? In Ephesians 5 and verse 2, it says about God's love. We are to walk in love as He loved us and gave himself a sweet-smelling sacrifice. That phrase is the burnt offering. It is nowhere else. It identifies the burnt offering. He gave himself a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. Tell me, who held the sword? Who held the sword? We are going to read in Scripture. Jesus quoted from this text, but he didn't quote the whole text. He said, all of you will flee from me tonight, for it's written. I will strike the shepherd. Who's the I? I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Who is striking the shepherd? 
Awake, O sword. Listen carefully. Zechariah 13 says, Awake, O sword. Which sword? That one we first see at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Is that clear? Awake. What does awake mean? It's in its sheath. It's not doing its work. When it awakes, when anything awakes like a sword, it's sleeping. It's not doing anything. Awake, O sword, against the man who is my fellow. If I had have had time, you, I would have taken you to Psalm 80. The man of my right hand, who have made, I have made strong for myself. You're listening to the words of God the Father about his son. That's what it tells you in the text, Psalm 80. I've made him strong for myself. This man of my right hand. So when you come to this, awake, O sword, who's holding the sword? The Father. And we forget. We look at the films. We see the damage done to Christ. And it was real. And it was intense. It was suffering beyond measure. But what about what was happening behind the scenes? What was happening? His own father held the sword and brought it down on his own son. We only see what man did. But you cannot see the hand of God unless you take the scriptures because behind the scenes you were seeing God make a sacrifice for you and me. Awake, O sword, against the man who is my fellow. There's only one man who is my fellow, that God's speaking. True? Smite the shepherd. Which shepherd? The great shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. Smite him. And the sheep will be scattered. Did it happen? He never quoted that first part. He just quoted about the sheep scattering. You go back and you look at the first part and you understand why he was down in the Garden of Eden and Garden of Gethsemane. Sweat like great drops of blood. If it's possible, take this cup. My own father... My own father, he holds the sword and it's going to come down on me. Our fellowship from eternity is about to be felt as though it's been broken. We will never understand the depths to which God the Father went. And God the Father accepted, God the Son accepted. The depths of feeling that existed in both of them because it is an action. We understand as fathers may be a little. The Bible speaks about when you lose your firstborn son, the sorrow you feel because you're only yet your firstborn and you have him for your inheritance, you want all from him. What does it feel like when you're dealing with God? His only son. He's going to do this too. Where does he put the picture? He puts the picture right back at the beginning of the history of our world. Because at that entrance to that garden, he placed a flaming sword. And it turns every way. So any man who approaches that, that's what will happen to him. The sword will kill him. The fire will consume him and he will become ashes. Now that was put there. Notice your Bible, underline it if you like. To keep what? Look in your Bible.
to keep to God. The way. That is the first mention of the word in your Bible. When it's first mentioned, God will build on that from the rest of Scripture, and He has. So He's laid out a pattern through the whole of Scripture. So we understand what it means to be followers of the way. All right. To guard the way. What to? Look in your Bible. What does He guard the way to? Tree of life. What's that mean? Real life. Eternal life. There is no life because sin has entered and death now reigns and has reigned over mankind from that action on. There are graves all over the world. Death has not been conquered unless you believe the gospel. Death is supreme. It's called the king of terrors in Job. It's an enemy. It's not a natural process by which we improve. It's an enemy. So when we come to this here, we are dealing with real issues concerning the issue of your eternity, my eternity. Why? Because I am part of mankind and so are you. And in Adam, when Adam sinned, your DNA code was in Adam. It's in you, it's in me, it's in every person here. You say, how come I'm a human? Well, I'm going to tell you, the DNA coding that is in you has an origin. The first man, Adam. And he's 23 from the father and 23 from the mother. Not him, he had no father and mother. He was created perfect but he was the man, Adam. So you were in Adam, unborn, but you are now here, you have been born, but you and I are a descendant of Adam. Which means I carry a sinful nature. Sinful. And it's a revelation to a man and Paul had it in Romans 7 when he said, I am a wretched man. In me dwells no good thing. That's a revelation when you think what he said. This is Paul. In me dwells no good thing. To will, I want to do it. It's present with me. How to perform what I want to do. I cannot do it. I'm a wretched man. Who can deliver me from this? When you get to that point, you're stepping into the area where God can start to work by His Spirit to produce the likeness of His Son in you and me. That's how far it has to go. We have to realise there is a point where we cannot do anything of ourselves. God must work. Our work is to combine or <coughs> cooperate with God. It is God who works in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. That's God's workmanship. You say, I become a Christian. I can't live the Christian life. True, you can't. You won't be able to. You'll have to admit it finally, that you're dependent upon God for you to live like Christ lived. 
Because why is it? In me dwells no good thing. No good thing? There's none good, no, not one. That's the charge of heaven against humankind. None that doeth good. Don't care how important a person may be, how good they were, might look in their works. Unless God does a work, there's no good thing in us. So how are you going to get into heaven with no good thing in you? You're not good to look at. I'm, I'm not talking about the appearance hourly. <laughs> I'm talking about when God looks, he looks at the heart. All right? I don't see as man sees. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I thought, search my heart, search me. That's what David said. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. These are cries from the heart of David. Ever been a cry from yours? Ever been a cry from mine? Are our cries the same as David's cries? A longing for accomplishing that which God has called you really to as his son? So it's a very important area. Guard the way to the tree of life. If you want eternal life, there is no other way. That is the beginning of our world. If you do not believe in the Garden of Eden, if you do not believe in original sin, if you don't believe in an Adam and Eve, which evolution wipes out as an understanding, if you don't believe it, you do not need a cross and you do not need a saviour. I can quote you from an atheist who sees clearly what evolution means and we Christians don't. He understood clearly for us Christians, if you accept evolution, you've wiped out the need for Calvary. And he said, in the sorry rubble you will find the remains of the Son of God. That's his wording. Because if there was no Garden of Eden, no original sin, no Adam and Eve, there's no need for a last Adam, the second man, the Lord from heaven. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, he's the last one of that creation, he has begun a new one. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's begun a new creation. So we're in a very important area. I'm going to take you very quickly through your Bible to show you that is the important area. What I did <coughs> was, yeah, uh, what I've done, I attempted, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a um, IT expert, I just fiddle. <laughs> I'm ignorant I, I, on that. But I've tried to put together some thinking visually because I'm in the Pacific and they see things visually. So when, when I'm there, this is the kind of thing I, I dug out and tried to put up. All right, so you have a look. They are wings. Next one shows the other wings of the... And so these are cherubim. I can't draw the creatures in. They would be uh, radiant gold and all that. We're in Genesis 3, 24. There are cherubim there. The direction is given is east. Keep going. It'll come if you keep pressing, I think. Yeah, keep going. You're in the Garden of Eden, where God's presence is. Outside now is sinful mankind. The tree of life is in that garden. When we come to the question of this garden, <coughs> if Adam and Eve had desired fellowship with God, and they were driven east. What did they have to do? 
And remember, they are representative of all mankind. You are in Adam, I am in Adam. Not yet born, but your, your genetic coding is from him. You are in him. Adam and Eve are driven out. This is east. West is here. If they want relationship to God, what have they got to do? They've got to turn round, not 360, 180. So they turn from east to west. So what great truth, unchangeable in the scripture, is demonstrated to our understanding? One word, repent. <coughs> when you're dealing with Hebrews, says, <coughs> not teaching the foundations again. And he lists the foundations. The first foundation, the first is repentance from dead works. Faith towards God. Two actions. The one is my past, what I've done. Repentance from dead works. Where am I, I, I looking? Faith towards God. <clears throat> so where's your focus? Fix your eyes on Jesus. I've turned my back on my past. I'm finished with it. And so I am going now to have fellowship with God. That is the message we get. Keep going. There is a sword, a sword at the entrance. Now that is a flaming sword. It turns every way. Down it comes. So, if mankind, whoever the representative or person is, wants eternal life, What's going to happen to them? Anyone. It means that will do its work. The cherubim are there to protect. You can't go in. And so the sword comes down and it burns. Tell me, did Jesus take your place? Did he take the place of mankind? He bore our sin in his own body, on the tree. So what happened? The sword came down and the fire consumed. And when he cried, I thirst, that is more than a depth of thirsting for just water. That is feeling the flaming anger of a holy God who's jealous for his own holiness and his son is bearing sin. And if he's going to take the way, he must suffer the consequences. And he did. Now God has not left us without shadows of all this through Scripture. And I'm going to touch on some. Alright? The first one you should know very well. I think I put it there. I've done all through that. Keep going. Stop, 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 stop. <laughs> we'll go to the one, that's the best one to go to. Go to Genesis 22. Some of them, most of you will know this um, incident in Scripture when God told Abram to do a task. All right, so we're in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. And we come from the beginning of this chapter. 
Abraham had failed several times in his life. Once when he first went down to Egypt with Sarah, once with Abimelech. Now we come to hear God later in his life, and he was never tested after this. Genesis 22 verse 1, Some time later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, did, is, that Isaac, is Isaac his only son? No, it's not. So how is Isaac his only son? Because he is the son of the promise. Everything depends on this son. He is the son of promise. Through this seed, it will continue on. The whole world will be blessed. So take now your son, your only son, Isaac. And we have a uh, grandson called Isaac. It means laughter. Whom you love. What's the picture? It's a father-son relationship, isn't it? It's only a shadow. What's the reality? Christ and the Father. You love him. The Father loves him. Whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah, meaning it will be seen. Moriah, the land of Moriah. Sacrifice him there. What as? A burnt offering. So we are getting pictures in history of our world he says, on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So there was a specific place that God wanted Abraham to offer his son. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. So you got the picture? Here he is. He gets up early in the morning. Talk about obedience. Early in the morning, clave the wood, loaded it on the donkey, took two servants. Why two servants? Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. He takes two servants with him. And then he goes three days' journey. Three days is very important in your Bible repeatedly when you see it. Three days. And God said to him, there it is. That's the place. So he said to his servants, you stay here. I am the lad. When, it was re when we read the word lad, we think of a little lad. He weren't no little lad because he carried the wood the donkey was carrying. He loaded the wood onto Isaac, his son. So Isaac is carrying the wood. The place is ahead. Now the wording is amazing and is taken in Hebrews. Abram's words are these. I and the lad will go over there and worship. There's no music. There's no black curtains or laser lights Amen. there is a knife and there is fire we are going to worship it's costly business and you're in the book of Hebrews and in Hebrews 13 it takes this and it shows you something of its nature here he says take your son and as they walk it says Isaac says to his dad father he says father where is this burnt offering? 
You have the knife and the fire. You have. What is Isaac carrying? The wood. Is it a picture? You are seeing Christ and his father in Isaac and Abraham. And twice it says, they went both of them together. Twice. Why? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Strong words. They went both of them together. So Isaac has other thoughts as well. He said, where is the burnt offering? And God said, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide. And it's an amazing scene because in Hebrews it says, by faith Abraham offered Isaac, believing God would raise him from the dead. You imagine faith. You plunge your knife into your own son. The fire reduces him to ashes. And he believed God would raise him from the dead. Now this same Abraham, back in his history, went down into Egypt. And before he got into Egypt, he said to Sarai, he said, don't say you're my wife. She's 65 years old. Don't say you're my wife. They will kill you to get me. She was a beautiful woman at 65. Do you women envy her? <laughs> at, at, at 65, she's a beautiful woman. And he knows it. And it's true. Because Pharaoh took her. His wife, it's not his wife, it's his sister. Took her. But everything went wrong. In Pharaoh's household in the land of Egypt, everything went wrong. And he found out she was his wife. And by the way, they had moral values back then. He realized he'd done wrong. He had another man's wife. So he restored it back. But Abraham, <coughs> he told a white lie. <laughs> Didn't he? She is his half-sister. Same father, different mother. So he's half-sister. So when he said, tell him you're my sister, that's a half-lie, a white lie. But it's a lie. Why did he do it? To preserve his life. That was his understanding. What had God said? From your seed, I will raise one up and the nations of the world will be blessed through him. Abraham came down here because there was a famine in the land. Not of bread nor of water, but hearing the word of God. God had told him, from your seed, he must survive. He must produce seed. If all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, it must happen. Now he failed with Abimelech, the same thing he did twice. Now you come to the last part of Abraham's life and we find God has done something in his life. Your faith is going to be tested. It is a principle of Scripture. When you believe the Word of God, you're going to be tested to prove that it is a workmanship God has done in you. Faith is tested. It's tried by fire. Peter tells us that. 
your faith being found under praise, glory and honour of God, it's tested. So it becomes an honour of God, something He's done. He receives the glory. It's what He's done in me. I didn't do it. I have seen God work in my life. That's what He's saying. Did Abraham know this? Twice he's failed on the same principle. Now, late in his life, God tests him. And we notice the instance of obedience and the faith that is being now brought out of this man's life. He said, I and the son will go over there. He knew what he was going to do. He said, we will come again. We will. We will. He believed God would raise his son from the dead. He had to because he'd promised. (coughs) How trustworthy is our God? Will you be tested? Will I be tested? Yes. God has the power to fulfill his word and he has to bring us to the point where we can trust him to keep his word. And Abraham was brought to that place and Abraham found out God could be trusted. Now when he lifted his hand to plunge that knife in because he bound Isaac, I want you to know he's not a lad. He's a strapping, strong young man. He's carried the wood up. He watched his father build an altar out of stone, no hewn tool to shape it, just rough stone from the creation. Put the wood on, the, on this heaped up altar, bind Isaac, lift him up, put him on the wood and then pick up his knife ready to plunge it and he's just ready to plunge it in. Abraham, Abraham! And stopped. Touch not the lad. Now I know. So he's under test. What did God provide? A ram. A ram in an amazing position. He's caught by his horns in a thicket. What's that? Alpha Crucis, the star on the top of the cross, a crown of thorns, is on the ram's head, a picture of the one made sin, the cursed one. Not only that, it's a ram. Ram has two pictures in your Bible, just taking the Old Testament. It's a sin offering. Or a trespass offering. I've got to think which. My mind has gone weary. <laughs> it's in Leviticus. Um, every offering, it, it, if it was in holy things, if you were offended in things with a neighbour, whatever it was, it was a ram you had to offer. Trespass offering. It's a ram. So is Christ your trespass offering? Because that's what the ram is for. That's why it's a ram. It's to tell you that this one who's made curse for us is our trespass offering. Now, have you ever trespassed against things God has told you? Holy things, things like that? Has Christ dealt with all those things? Did he see those things before you did them? Did God know all about it before you were born in this world? We come to grapple with God, don't we? And he's made our trespass offering. Not only that, the tabernacle is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. The tabernacle is. That's the tabernacle. But above the tabernacle is ram's skins dyed red. Ram's skins dyed red. So is he 
your trespass offering. This is the tabernacle. This is the covering over the tabernacle. It's not the tabernacle. It's Christ as he is in his humanity. God has perfectly fulfilled every detail concerning your and my condition. He has left nothing out. Do you believe it? He has fulfilled exactly the five offerings He gave to the nation of Israel to picture the work of Christ for you and me. It's full. The meal offering is His humanity. Got a sin offering, a peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering. It's all in the meal offering. He is. So Abraham does all this. And he returns. That's Abraham. Do you see there a picture of father and a son? But notice, it was a place I will show you about. It was a fixed place. It's Mount Moriah. <coughs> and the wording was, Jehovah Jireh, I will provide. It will be seen, I will provide. So you're going years ahead through your Bible, and you come to a king, King David. And when you come, I'll go quick because I think time will run out. When you get to the King David, this is what you see. <coughs> One place it says God did tempt David. Other place it says Satan did. All right, so we're watching things work together here. So what is it? He numbers Israel. <coughs> and you were not to number Israel without taking a census offering which is half a shekel of silver. And God said when he instituted, if you do, a plague will come. If you don't take the, the, the money for the census offering, called the, the atonement money, a plague will take Israel. So David numbered Israel. And Joab didn't like what he did. Joab wasn't going to go ahead with it, but he had to, and he didn't number all Israel. And a plague fell on Israel, and 70,000 died. And David is in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, as it's killed off people out of the nation, 70,000, that's a lot of people. And he watches and he sees the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, standing with sword drawn over Jerusalem. And he cried out, These are innocent sheep. I have sinned. And God said, go and purchase the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. And David, and you can put, you can put two, two, two accounts together, and what happened was this, David <coughs> went to him, and he wanted to purchase the threshing floor. Now, Arona's sons hid themselves. They were terrified. They could see the angel of the Lord with sword drawn. Arona could see it. David could see it, everyone. This is the sword drawn over Jerusalem. And God is dealing with the man, the King David. And he comes to Arona. And Arona said, I'll give it to you. And he said, I will never offer to the Lord my God that which cost me nothing. What a statement. I'll never offer. Did he have an understanding? Is it costly if we are going to do the will of God? It's going to cost me and I'm going to cover the cost. And by the way, that's real, land, real, uh, real estate 
that belongs to Israel from that point on. He purchased it from the Jebusite. He gave the money. It's real estate now in Israel that David purchased with his money. So what he did was this. <coughs> he said he cut up the, the, uh, the equipment of wood. He sacrificed the animals on top, put it all in place. And God answered with fire from heaven. God answered with fire from heaven. And, and the sword went back into the sheath. It did not come down. Why? Wrong victim. Wrong victim did not come down. You go from this point here and you come to Solomon. Solomon is given instructions. David handed him all the pattern of the temp temple, the, the, um, the material he'd provided for it, and he was to build the temple exactly as David had instructions by the Spirit of God. When he was to do it, you know where he did it? The piece of ground that David had purchased from Arona the Jebusite. So you notice what's there? That's the temple. That's where it's built, on the exact place. Who do you think nearly offered his son there years before? Abraham. Notice he's got a place. He's fixed something happening at that place. You go years ahead now. Christ is hanging on the cross. The temple is there. Tell me, awake, O sword, against the man who is my fellow. It is unsheathed now. The right victim is there. And down comes the sword on his own son. And as that sun and that fire, that sword and the fire do their work. And by the way, <coughs> Mark is very exact in his timing. <coughs> it's the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning. He was lifted up on the cross. That is the time of the morning sacrifice when a lamb was taken with unleavened bread and a poured out drink offering, put on the altar and consumed to ashes. That is the morning sacrifice to be done daily, every day in the nation of Israel. So as Christ is lifted up on the cross, the morning sacrifice of a perfect lamb is being done before the temple. The, I'm putting two things together. You understand what happened on this day. Then you come to the time of the um, evening sacrifice, three o'clock in the afternoon. What happened then? That is the time when he cried out, It is finished. And at that point in Matthew, God took the veil, the separating point. No man could come, only the high priest, once a year only. It was closed, it was a barrier, you could not come. And God tore it from top to bottom. What is he saying? You can come. On what grounds? The blood of Christ. That's what it tells us in Hebrews. No grounds you've got. No grounds I've got. Look what Christ has done. This happened in history. A real event. That's our message, isn't it? This is the way. It's the way to eternal life. God has fulfilled the Garden of Eden picture exactly in his own son. Hasn't he? That's what has happened. 
So what are we called to preach? The way. Aren't we? We're to be known for our message. It is the way. The way to eternal life. God first gave it in the Garden of Eden, has perfectly fulfilled his action at Calvary. How do you know your sin has gone? That's a big question. How do you know your sin? Have you got any assurance in your understanding your sin has gone not on anything you have done not going to church not doing being baptized not doing other things how do you know your sin has gone are you dependent on feelings no faith is not feelings how do you know your sin has gone well listen very carefully and i'll finish here when god came to israel he gave them seven feasts all right in order in timing and in detail, they go through for annually every year. So the first feast is what? Seven feasts, Passover. Passover, and he, is he the lamb? Is he the Passover lamb? Yes, he is, Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 5. He's the Passover lamb. Now, what's the next feast after that? Passover lamb, what's the next feast? Unleavened bread. So the day after the Passover is sacrificed, there is a special Sabbath. You can do no work, all right? Then there's seven days and the last day is a special Sabbath. It's seven days of unleavened bread. Unleavened means no leaven. Leaven represents sin. So it's a time when we are reminded there is no corruption. No corruption. It's a feast, seven days of unleavened bread. What happened? What is the third feast? First fruits. What happens in first fruits? In the first fruits, if it's a feast, as it is described, the priest goes in, you can't harvest anything till the priest goes into the crop. Barley is the first crop, wheat is the second. He goes into the barley crop, he takes a sickle or a cutting instrument, cuts till he gets a sheaf, you know, bundles it like this, ties it up, and then you have a sheaf. And a sheaf represents a person. You say, how do you know? Well, Joseph said, my sheaf stood up and all your sheaves bowed down to me. And they knew what he meant. You're the first sheaf and we are all the brothers. We are the other sheaves. They knew what he meant by his thing. So the sheaf represents a person. And on this day, the feast of first fruits, they take one sheaf, first harvest. Nothing is to be done till this is done. You'll take it into the presence of one. He'll wave it before God. Waving when you come to your offerings means resurrection. The life. Resurrection. He waves it before God. So what happened the first day of the week? Christ rose from the dead. Do you know, my wife studies Hebrew, the, the Jews did not observe this feast? Isn't it interesting? The Jews do not observe this feast. We do. We do. They measure the omer and this kind of thing and they have days, but not this feast they don't measure. Do you and I remember what happened this day? It's the foundation of our faith. He rose from the dead. As surely as he rose, you are going to rise. The dead in Christ will rise. How do you know your sins have put away? This is very important. Peter preached it. Paul preached it. We don't. How do you know your sins are put away? You can base it on the feast. In understanding. Now he is the Passover lamb. He's the Passover lamb. What feast followed? Unleavened bread. Now go back right back to the Passover. You have unleavened bread for a week. So leaven represents sin. It's corruption. When they took Christ down from the cross, 
Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrapped him, put him in the tomb. What didn't happen to him that happens to every other person put in the grave? There was no corruption. Peter on the day of Pentecost quoted, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. David, being a prophet, knowing God would raise his own son from the dead, said you will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. He never corrupted in the tomb. What's that tell you? What did he carry on the cross? All your sin, all my sin. Didn't he? If I'm to believe the gospel message, he carried my sin on the cross. But when he went into the tomb, was he carrying sin? No. He had put it away. That's what Hebrews tells you. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We are called to believe the gospel message, aren't we? And we miss out on this feast. When Paul said, you preach the gospel, there are three points. He said this, and he encourages them, 1 Corinthians 15, to stand fast in the gospel they had received from him. What is the gospel? Christ died. That's a fact. Why did he die? For our sins. How do you know, Paul? The Scriptures tell me. What is the next step in the Gospel? He was buried. So if you got him buried, what have you got? An uncorrupting body in the grave that has no sin. Why? Because it's been put away. That's why. Paul does the same thing in Acts 13. He uses the same principle of teaching to assure us Christ's work is finished and when he lay in the tomb, the sin he bore on the cross had been put away. They tell me Itau. Itau is uh, Lost Tribes Mission and the way they approach in Bible translation, they take high points through your Bible, but they never mention the name Jesus. But they take out these great points of the Scripture, then they finally get in one translation and one um, reading of it and, and uh, role play of the thing, his death, burial and resurrection. And I have seen the video of it. When they read that, they've not heard his name Jesus up to this, they're not told about it, they're told all the incidents from the Old Testament. And then finally in one point, they bring together his death, burial and resurrection. What happens then is amazing. They exhibit such, they throw each other in the air and they rejoice, our sins are gone, our sins are gone. They see things clearer than often we do. They've come out of the intense darkness. Idolatry and all that goes with it and all the behaviour that goes with it. And they get to this point in the gospel message, having not been told his name, what he's doing. And they get to this point and in one day they cover his death, burial and resurrection. And the truth hits them and the effect is amazing. I've seen the, the video of it. They are just rejoicing, throwing each other in the air. Our sins are gone, our sins are gone. <laughs> is that the kind of thing we should get in response to the gospel we preach? Clear understanding of the way should give us an understanding and assurance that God has really dealt with our sins by his Son. And he's put them away. 
The book of Hebrews is a big book. It's only a short book according to the writer, but it's a big book with a lot of stuff. I have covered very little. I spoke this up in Mount Hagen in a packed church of Papua New Guineans. And I will never forget it. I took them through. And when William Poyer, my, the principal at Bible College, said, Morris, you pray. I said, no, these are your people, the Templar people. said, you pray. Well, he prayed. And I was bowed down behind the pulpit and the women crying. It went on for a while, long time. As they grasped the way, because so often we don't outline clearly what Christ has done. And it very greatly, and it wasn't me, it was this man praying. And I felt the power of his praying for his own people. And they had felt the power of the word of God as we had gone through. You could see it. And it went on for quite a period. And I realized our capacity, I'm not an evangelist. I'm a teacher by nature and gifting. But I realize evangelists need to be evangelists. They need to carry the gospel message with power, the truths of it, because that is what transforms. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. That's the entrance to the Garden of Eden, isn't it? It's all laid out there. It's been done. Our responsibility, carry the message. Tell what's happened. Because the faith is not in any church or in anything you have done. Your faith is in Christ and what he's done. That's the grounds of salvation. God bless you. Thank you very much for the time we have been able to spend with you. Again, let me express my appreciation I've told numbers of people, <coughs> we find it refreshing to be able to come down here and feel the fellowship, the prayer in the mornings, the worship, everything that goes with the camp. And I thought, even if we uh, am not coming down to speak or to do anything, it would be to come down for the fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> and we are blessed by it. Thank you very much, Gary, for inviting us down. <laughs>